Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain, and this is the Creative Writers Tool Belt, the podcast that offers you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you'll also find information about the Creative Writers Tool Belt handbook, which condenses all of the very best advice and insight from the first 100 episodes of the podcast into one place. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Creative Writers Tool Belt and that it's helpful to you on your writing journey. And welcome to episode 122 of the Creative Writers Tool Belt. This episode is a conversation with veteran audiobook narrator Sean Pratt. Sean lifts the lid on the world of audiobook narration for us and gives us some expert tips on speaking well in public events, including book readings. Before I get into my conversation with Sean, I just wanted to mention that if anyone fancies a taste of some of my early short stories, you can check out my standalone space mystery, Traveller's Blues, and books one and two of my Space Trader series, that's Precious Cargo and Junk Voyage, featuring my good-hearted and slightly shabby protagonist, Marlo Kemp. All of these short stories are available for 99 cents, and they're now on just about every platform, Kindle, Nook, Kobo, iBooks and many more and I hope you enjoy them. So back to this episode and my guest today is as I said Sean Pratt and Sean originally trained and worked as an actor and he has worked professionally in TV, film, theatre and voiceovers for over 30 years. He has spent the last 22 years working as an audiobook narrator and in that time he has narrated close to 1,000 audiobooks. These days Sean focuses on the arguably more challenging art of narrating non-fiction books but he also coaches authors who want to narrate their own work. In our conversation, we get under the surface of the audiobook narration business, which I discovered is worth around about $3 billion, and that's just in the US alone. And we explore the process that Sean and his colleagues go through to exercise their trade. And Sean also gives some advice for those who might want to narrate their own book. And it turns out that this is a very demanding thing to do properly. Also, Sean shares some practical tips on speaking in public and reading your work aloud to an audience. Here's that conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so Sean, welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. Great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Now, I know that you've been narrating audiobooks for what, 23 years now, and mm-hmm. you've won numerous awards. And I, I think you've you've narrated approaching a 1,000 audiobooks. It's about 950 now, isn't it? For my listeners uh, who, who may not know about your work, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, how you got into narrating, and the kind of the kind of work that you do now? Um, I grew up in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, smack in the middle of the United States. And I started acting in the theater when I was 10. Went off to get my my degree in acting after I got out of high school. And by the time I graduated, I wanted to do classical theater. That was was really sort of uh, sure. jazzing me to move forward. <laughs> uh, but in the meantime, even though I, I, I wanted to do that, I did a lot of Shakespeare in the Park kind of groups in Arizona, yeah. New Mexico, Colorado. And I did a lot of Westerns, movies and TV shows um, because I had long hair, longer than now. <laughs> and um, <laughs> Uh, because I could ride a horse and shoot a gun, I was in a lot of uh, movies uh, that came to the area to film. So it was a pretty good life for you know a guy in his early twenties. Yeah. But um, but then I moved to New York in 1990 uh, to start working doing classical theater in the regional theaters in the area for about five years, six years. I was the resident male juvenile, so I played all the young <laughs> prince roles. Yeah. Whether it was for Shakespeare or Sophocles or Moliere or whatever. And it was a great training ground to learn about text and performance and comedy. And but in 1994, though, I was working in a regional theater in Washington, D.C., doing a production of Henry IV, Parts 1 and 2. And 
I ran into a younger actor who was in the show. We just started rehearsing. His name is David Hilder. He's a playwright now in New York. Okay. And we were in the green room. I'm just chatting. And I said, so what do you do when you're not working? And he said, I narrate audiobooks. I said, really? What's that all about? <laughs> I hadn't a clue. Hadn't a clue. Yeah. And so I... So he told me over a cup of coffee and, you know, he said, well, if you ever were to move down to this area, I could introduce you to some people. And I said, oh, yes. okay. But I, you know, I wasn't really, I was working, you know, doing theater. And, but two years later, I did move down to Washington, D.C. to be with my girlfriend. And I called him up and he introduced me to a gentleman named Grover Gardner, who's a real icon in our industry. And Grover was gracious enough to let me cut a demo with him. And so he shopped it around for me. And my first two clients right out of the bat were Blackstone Audio and Books on Tape. And uh, I ju it was also around this time I was transitioning out of theater. Yeah, I was doing less and less of it. Uh, doing the repertory schedule was just grueling. And I also wanted other things in my life. I wanted to get married and have a family. And so audiobooks were a good fit because I was moving into film and television. And the only work a few days, you know, here and there on those kinds of projects. Yes. Yeah. So I went full time pretty early on doing mainly fiction. And I, by the end of the 1996, I was doing basically a book a week. And it's pretty much held steady like that. Wow. Okay. For the entire, you know, 22 years, 23 years. And it's only been within, let's see, about 15 years ago, I started doing more and more nonfiction. And I found I really enjoyed it for the intellectual yes. stimulation. Yeah. And also, it was more challenging. Narrating nonfiction is more difficult to do when you put it in the context of making it entertaining. Yes. Yeah. Right? It's a much more difficult proposition to deliver on than uh, fiction is. Okay. And so that's one of the reasons I, I gravitated to it. Audiobooks obviously have become hugely popular more recently. Mm. So I'm, I'm guessing that that market for the kind of thing you do has grown. Now, why, why do you think that is? Uh, several reasons. Well, first of all, the volume, um, you know, the number of audiobooks that are being produced has been growing on a, almost a geometric curve for the last 20 years. Mm. They've been doubling. So I think last year, and just in the United States, something, I think approaching 50,000 books were, this is new material. Yes. Yeah. You know, and I, Domestically here in the United States, I th think we're aiming to reach $3 billion in sales wow. uh, this year. That doesn't include, of course, the UK market. Sure. Um, and it has to do with the velocity of our lives. People are just busy. And, but they, they hunger for entertainment. They want to keep reading, but they can't. They, they're on the subway going to work or are stuck in a car on the highway. Mm. Um, or they're busy with their children. Just last week, I was in New York all week for the Audio Publishers Association Conference, and um, I sat in on one of the presentations done by a marketing research company that APAC had hired to answer this basic question. Yes. And people are busier now. They still hunger for new information, but the notion of sitting down and reading is – it's not that they don't want to. They just don't have the time. If you look at it from a narrator's perspective, what I teach my narration students is I tell them, always remember that when somebody is listening to your performance in an audiobook, 90% of the time, they are doing something else. So you yeah. are fighting yeah. there for their attention. And we're visual animals to begin with. So we have to come across in a performance that will hold their attention. And it's a, that's yeah. a, you know, can be very tricky at times. It's basically the velocity of our lives is what it's what's boosting. Audiobook sales. Okay. 
And if if somebody's kind of sitting on the fence with audio, as a consumer of audiobooks and, and they have never tried it but they've thought about it, are there any particular audiobooks that you'd recommend as a way for people to, to start using them? Well, I would say go to audible.com and there's also, uh, also um, audible.com.uk and you can do a free trial there. And then it's mainly picking a genre you like. You know, start there. Yeah. And then uh, pick a book that you might be interested in and look at the uh, look at the, the listener reviews. Those are all done by listeners, not by publishers. So, you know, if you happen to like noir fiction or um, self-help books or cozy mysteries or whatever, start with a genre you enjoy or even maybe a book that you read in the past and you might be interested in hearing what an audiobook version of it sounds yes. like. Yeah. You know, yeah. start with something. Start with something that you're already inclined to enjoy. Now, I mentioned earlier that you've worked on close to a thousand projects. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. there anything over that time, when you think about it, that you that you've particularly enjoyed working on? Any projects you thought, yeah, that was great? Oh, sure. There's been plenty. Let's see. I did Ben Hur by Lou Wallace. That was a wow. wonderful book. Uh, Rain Tree County by John Lockwood Jr. That was a wonderful book. Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. Um, I did a two-volume biography of Abraham Lincoln by Michael Burlingham. That one clocked in at 110 hours, so it's a bit bit of a, <laughs> a stretch to listen to. But it was yeah. a great book. I, and then I do really interesting books on psychology and sociology. I did a book called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. It's about how we deal with PTSD and anxiety okay. and stress. It's actually yeah. one of my b- biggest sellers. I did a book recently called Captivology by Ben Barr. It's about the science of attention getting and a fascinating topic. And that's, I guess that once again, that's one of the reasons I like nonfiction so much. It makes me sound somewhat intelligent at a cocktail party. (laughs) You know, um, you know, if you want to know, how do they drill for oil in the middle of the ocean? I can tell you, I've done three books about it. Do you want to know about Bitcoin? I can discuss that. I've done five books on that. I've done so many books on investing in Wall Street that now the terminology, I don't have to look it up. I know exactly what it means. Mm. The truth be told, over time, you do so many books that are so interesting that you actually sort of run out of a list. You just, you know, it's it's just an endless list of really interesting material. Yeah, I mean, it, it does sound like you you'd become pretty widely read, literally, wouldn't you, from from doing this work? Um, yeah. One interesting thing that I noticed was that you actually narrate as two different people. So there's Sean mm-hmm. Pratt, and there's also Lloyd James. So it's almost like you've got a kind of pseudonym for for. for why, why have you got two names? How does that work in your profession? Well, we call it a nom de vox, and that's the catchy <laughs> uh, phrase. Uh, yeah. It started um, – oftentimes, you'll have a second name when you do different kinds of material. Um, sure. Lloyd James started because I, I wanted to work under my a different name when I began because at the time, the Performers Union had, didn't have any contracts with the audiobook companies, and no one knew how it was all going to shake out, but I wanted sure. to do it. Uh, I wasn't a member of – AFTRA, which is the television and radio union that audiobooks would fall under. So I was advised to use a pseudonym at the time, but now it's grown that I can use that name as an off name for different genres. It's also interesting that um, sometimes I'll be put forward by a producer as Sean Pratt to narrate a book and an author will go, nah, I don't, yeah, he was okay. And then the producer will go, hang on, I've got somebody else you need to listen to. This guy named (laughs) Lloyd James. And I'll go and redo the audition and I'll get it. That's a true story. I've had that happen oh, wow. multiple times. <laughs> but a lot of times we use a nom de vox. If you, if, if a narrator is doing like romance or erotica, especially. Yes. That. So that's usually the reason people use a nom de vox. 
so you can separate one identity from the other and do different different material. So so you're you're separating out by across the market that you're working in different genres, different styles. Yes. Now I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about the work that goes on behind the scenes. When you get a when you get a project and a commission, what do you do to prepare right. uh, and 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 then go on to create the recording of your of the audiobook that you're working on? Well, if it's a piece of fiction, you always read the fiction first because you're read it through because you're thinking about character voices and you know the storyline and you need to know the mystery voice in chapter seven turns out to be so and so in chapter yeah. twenty. In nonfiction, I have a system. I narrate a book a week, so I actually don't have time to read the nonfiction material I get cover to cover. So I've developed a system by where I can skim through the material and answer really important questions such as who's the audience, what's the genre, what's the tone, what's the POV of the writer, what kind of research is needed, can I do it myself or do I need to hire my researcher to step in and do the research for me if it's extensive. As a performer, I'm looking for the writer's voice. I mean, writers do get concerned about their voice and writer's voice. So it sounds as if it's something that you're looking for as a as a kind of clue and a way into narrating the work as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, when I... I sort of stalk the writer. I find their websites. <laughs> I go online. Are they on Twitter, on Facebook? Are they, are they on YouTube being interviewed or promoting the book or yes. doing a TED Talk? And I watch all that stuff. That's part of my research. I just – not that I'm going to imitate the writer because, you know, God forbid I should have a gentleman who's from the deep south, but he has a stutter. I'm not going to imitate that no, in the no. recording. And also you might have writers – who in person, they might be very formal or very reserved, but on paper, they're extremely dynamic. You always go with the the character of the writer that's on the page. Yes. That's the character yeah. you're going for. I do the biographical research. I just want to know this person's bona fides. You know, have they done other work? Have they, you know, just to get a feel for who they are as a person. Yeah. And, um, but you always go with the character that's on that page. Always. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Uh, now, some authors are tempted by and, in fact, go on to record their own work. Um, so with all of your experience, what advice would you give an author who's thinking of narrating their own audiobook? Well, I think I could best sort of answer the question by telling you a quick anecdote. Yeah, sure. Um, so back in 1992, I, I was living with my first wife, Karen, in Midtown Manhattan. She was an aspiring writer. And all of her friends were aspiring artists of some dancers and musicians and writers and so on. And uh, I was the sole actor. And at that time, I'd been doing classics for many years. And one afternoon on Saturday, she said, hey, there's going to be a reading in Central Park tonight. These four writers are going to be reading from the material. A local bookstore is uh, sponsoring it. I want to go with our friends. I said, sure, let's do it. I'd never been to one. So we packed our blanket and our basket of wine and cheese and bread and stuff. And we go to the park. And we set up in this sort of open amphitheater area. The first writer comes out, and he was terrible. He, 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 was, he mumbled his way through it. You could barely hear him on the microphone. He never looked at us and thanked us and left. The next writer came out, and she was uh, – we could hear her all right, but she was incredibly nervous. She had never done anything like this before. She was a, a, just a you know, just a brand-new writer, scared to death to be up there. And so hmm. she, you could literally hear the fear in her voice. <laughs> The third writer gets up, this gentleman. Now, we could hear him. He was nice and clear, but 
he had done lots of readings in bookstores that you could tell, but he was just machine gunning his way through the text. And so by this time in the evening, I'm a, I'm a little, shall we say, disappointed as a performer. Okay. Yes, now I have to yes. preface as as someone who grew up getting in front of people and, and entertaining them. I was not I was not being entertained. And then finally, Tom Robbins came out, the man who wrote you know Jitterbug Perfume and Skinny Legs and all and all that. This and this out walks this courtly Southern gentleman. He's charming. He's personable. He looks us all in the eye. He cracks jokes. He was just relaxed, and he got up there and he read from I don't remember which book he read from, but it was wonderful. It, we laughed and we were enthused, and he just you know the twenty minutes went by like that. Yeah, and it was a really it was a big object lesson to me that it's one thing to write a book and it's quite another to perform the book, and that's the key word: perform it, not read it. He performed from the book, and that's the that's the starting off point that I would say for writers oh, that's who are interested. So, so you draw a distinction then between reading a book and performing a book. Yes, yeah, so there's a concept I teach my my narration students. I call it the TED Talk theory of nonfiction narration, and you can use this for fiction. But I'll I since nonfiction is my niche in the industry, and it's what I teach from as a coach. Let me explain it to you. I think you'll understand. The TED Talk idea is. There's a triangle, okay? The first point at the top of the triangle is the author or authors. That's the person I am, the character I am portraying. Yes. The second point of the triangle is who is the audience? Now, in classic VO training, when we're, we're taught how to do television commercials or sell cornflakes or whatever, we're taught to narrate to one person very specifically. But in audiobooks, I teach my students, and what I do, especially in nonfiction, is I narrate to a wide audience. Who was the audience for? Right. So if it's a book about Bitcoin, in my mind, it might be a bunch of young investors yes. who are interested in doing something like that. Or if it's a book about PTSD, it might be a group of soldiers or people who have de- uh, dealt with it in their family or something like that. So you, And that information is inherent in the book itself. But the third point of the triangle is the most critical. The third point is, where would you, that's me, the author, where would mm. I be as the narrator with that particular audience in a physical location so that the text on the page stops being text to be read and instead is the transcript of what I said? Okay. You see the decision? So there's yes. a, there's like a paradigm shift. It becomes, literally, the text on that page becomes no different than the lines from Hamlet, like to be or not to be, that is the question. That's what Hamlet says. It's not meant to be read. It's meant to be performed. Mm. And that's mm. because, once again, the, the critical distinction is an audiobook must be entertaining first and foremost, period. That's the metric we all use when we listen to an audiobook. Was it entertaining? You know, and yeah, in fiction, interesting. It's, yeah. Yeah. In fiction, it's easier for the writer because they have storytelling tools. You know, it's, it's whatever their imagination can come up with. They pick a fun genre, they have a plot, plot. Devices, tropes, themes, characters, dialogue, and so on. In nonfiction, it's much more difficult because all we have over there is the writer's voice giving us their intellectual argument in a logical progression to illuminate their truth. But either way, the overall goal for whoever narrates that story is the audiobook experience must be entertaining. And if you approach it as if you're just reading from it, the odds on that happening are, are, are slim to none. Mm. Oh, that's, that, is, that is very interesting. Ed. I wondered if you would agree with the the statement, therefore, that even no, non-fiction narration has in some sense to be a story. It has to be something that carries oh, your audience. Yes, absolutely. And there's, unfortunately, though, we run into 
there's been like four big obstacles you hit in nonfiction. Um, the first, the first obstacle you run into when trying to achieve that goal is uh, understanding that the book, uh, well, a piece of written nonfiction, its purpose is to be educational or informative. The notion that it might be entertaining sometimes is not even sometimes is not even on the radar screen of the yeah. writer. Yeah. Right. So the fir- when we're converting this into an audiobook, you have to reposition the book to say it must be entertaining first. Because if it's not, the listener is going to turn it off, you know, and send it back to Audible and give you a one-star <laughs> review. Or if they have to listen to it, say, for their job or their vocation, you know, they must plow through it. Well, then if it's boring, it'll go in one ear and out the other. The second obstacle you run into is one of uh, this misunderstanding that there – a lot of people think, well, if it's just nonfiction, I'm just reading facts and figures. There's no acting involved. But there is. It's a very basic construct. It's that triangle. Right. If you can see the audience and realize that you're performing for them, um, it's the act of being what I call being enthusiastic, engaging, and entertaining about your topic, both yeah. as if I'm a narrator doing it or the writer performing it. Um, the third problem you run into is you just have fewer storytelling tools to work with in nonfiction. Over in fiction, you have you know all these cool voices and dialogue and so on to, to move the story forward. But in nonfiction, like I said, it's just the writer's voice. Telling us their idea. Yeah. Right? And then the last thing that stands in, that is a very big obstacle for nonfiction, and this can trip up even a seasoned narrator um, and can scare the bejesus out of a writer doing a really large piece of nonfiction, (laughs) is stamina. Um, You know, if you charted, like on a graph, the rise and fall of tension in a piece of fiction, say uh, a murder mystery, you know, it starts at zero. And it rises to its first crisis point, and then the next chapter is a release, right? Yes. And then it rises to yes. a higher, you know, point and further yeah. in the book, and then there's a release. So you have these moments in the book that sort of, for the narrator and the listener, they go, ah, oh, okay, Ooh. yes, yeah, right. They can they can collect themselves before the story pushes forward. With the exception of memoir and biography, nonfiction doesn't work that way. In nonfiction, the writer sets the tone and tempo and energy of the piece in the preface or introduction. So it starts at zero, jumps up to its level of intensity, and then maintains that intensity through the entire book until the conclusion. It never lets up. It's relentless. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, a lot of authors now, and self-published authors that I know, they're they're seriously thinking about releasing an audio book mm-hmm. and they don't want to do it themselves so right. if you're a obviously if, if you go through a publishing house they can organize this for you but if you're self-published and you would like somebody to narrate your book what do you do how how do you how do you find some what what's the process there's there's a couple of process processes there's now a website um it's owned by amazon and so the material published through it, it goes to audible for for sale it's called acx.com. It stands for Audio Creative Exchange. Okay. And here we have self-published authors putting up their material and narrators audition for it. And there's ah, different kinds okay. of there's different kinds of contractual agreements. There's what's known as a royalty share where they uh, basically Amazon takes 60% and then the writer and the author, I mean the writer and the narrator take 20% each. There's other platforms too, like Spoken Realms is another wonderful platform for uh, writers and uh, narrators to get together and produce. They get a higher percentage of their material in the, in the royalty share. But then also on uh, ACX, they have what's known as per finished hour rate, 
Now, as a narrator, when I work, when I'm being paid, I get, I get paid by the finished hour. That's the industry standard. Okay. So let's just, for the sake of math, say that my rate is two hundred dollars or two hundred pounds, right? So mm-hmm. if I'm doing a book and it's going to be ten hours long, that means I'm going to make two thousand dollars. Now, however long it takes me on my end to create that thing, that's up to me. But in the end, the publisher will be sending me that check for that amount. The thing I would strongly uh, tell authors who want to go this route is that they should be ready to put up a little money for the production. Mm. You know, even though they wrote it, they've probably paid an editor to work with and a proofreader to get it right and maybe spent money for a cover of the book. Well, it's no different for the narrator. Sure. As a narrator, I'm also a as a narr- in that situation as the narrator i'm also the producer and the audiobook publisher in a way okay so there's a pr- i have to pay a proofer and i need to pay my engineer and of course mm-hmm. i'm trying to make money too so you know it, if you want a, a royalty share kind of proposition more than likely you'll be dealing with brand new narrators whose skill level is only of a certain standard so it's that old thing the more you pay the more it's worth mm-hmm. yeah but if they have a budget and or if they're working with a publisher and the publisher has some kind of budget they can also seek out a narrator if they've heard you know, someone's voice. For instance, I just closed a deal uh, with a gentleman who found me uh, through Twitter. He's heard several of my books on uh, in the religious genre, and he wants to do a book about Ju- Judaism. It's a five, six-hour book. And so I quoted him my per-finished hour rate, and that includes everything that I do on my end. And so we've made the agreement. And so... Usually when you authors and narrators meet like that, it's sort of a half up front and then half before the final sure, files are done. Sure. Um, and those are the two mm. main avenues, I would say. Okay. So what, what strikes me as interesting from what you've just said there, and I guess I would have worked this out maybe uh, if I'd thought about it more, um, the service you offer includes the engineering, includes the recording. So if I came to you, for example, offered you a contract at this per finished hour rate, it's incumbent on you to sort out all the engineering and the rec- recording. Whatever you, you give me back, the finished audio file is that, you, is that yes. the deal? Yes, that's correct. It, you know, on a per finished hour rate and even royalty share rate, I'm responsible for all of that on my end. So, in the at the finished product are those files that the author can then upload to Audible.com or iTunes or whatever. Yes. If it's a per finished hour rate, it's just a work for hire situation. You know, it's no different than hiring a carpenter to come into your home to work on something. Mm. You know, it's, mm. I do the work, this is my fee. Yes. And, you know, the royalty share is different. There, the narrator has a right to whatever percentage is agreed upon. Yes. For, I think it's seven years. Okay. Okay. Now, a lot of authors might have to read their work. And I'm not just talking about here to, to record an audio book, but because right. they're in a public space and, um, you've kind of alluded to some of the issues that 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 can generate um but if i'm an author and i'm going to read a book launch or i'm at a book reading or there is some environment where i have to present perform let's say perform from the word you used earlier i have to perform my work what kind of advice would you give me as a writer who has to audibly perform well there's two different situations the first one you're talking about is a live performance yes right so if the writer is unsure about how to approach it, the first thing is to get the mindset correct. Understand you are performing the work. And so the more performance you can bring to the work, uh, the better off you are. So that you might need to take, I don't know, some uh, classes in public speaking. 
maybe a, 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 an acting class, hire a coach to work with. It's interesting, a lot of the larger publishers, like Random House or HarperCollins, if they have an A-list author about to go out on a press tour, yeah, and that author is deemed not ready, they actually have coaches inside the company that will work with okay. them to get them ready, like yeah. an acting coach. So, so you know, I, I would say the, the easiest thing to do in that situation is look around for a, an acting coach or a public speaking coach, schedule some time with them, show them the material. Because, you, you know, you've got to figure they're only going to be reading for between 10 to 30 minutes, somewhere in there. And so they would practice just that piece and they would learn to perform just that piece. No different than an actor getting up on stage okay. to perform a, a bit. Okay, so obviously, Sean, some people want to and need to just read their stuff live at a book launch or whatever they're doing but some authors want to record their own work and i'm sure you've come across people like that and in fact have coached people like that so what what kind of advice and and insight would you be giving to people in that position first of all i would say if you're on the fence about it put it up for audition on acx and see what kind of auditions come back because you're going to realize there is a difference between someone who's trained to do it and someone who is not Yes. But if you but if the author feels confident that they can approach their own material, perhaps they for their own career, you know, marketing and advertising reasons, they must be the voice of their own book. If they're a celebrity of some stature within their own world, okay, so now the gauntlet's been thrown down, they need to get ready for, for it. So when I'm working with uh, an author, one of the first things and I'll talk about the world of nonfiction, um, because that's my sure. specialty. The very first consultation I have with them is we actually go through the text and I show them how to convert the text to make it, we call it listener friendly. Right? We have, because we actually tweak things in nonfiction. It's not verbatim. For instance, okay. That when you first introduce an acronym, you must always explain what the acronym is. Don't ever uh, assume the listener knows what your particular acronym means. But after you explain it once, you can say the acronym from then on. Uh, if you use a citation with numbers, numbers must always have context. Yes. Uh, yes we, ex- okay. we expand uh, abbreviations. We don't say re or re for re colon. We say regarding. We call them listeners, not readers. It's an audiobook, not a book. Little things like that. Yeah. And then also, how do you deal with illustrations and charts? Usually, I tell the author that they must create a companion PDF download. It's one thing to explain a Venn diagram. You know, uh, that's two circles that overlap. It's quite a different uh, proposition to explain a painting or a picture or a comprehensive, ge- you know, mm. economic diagram. Yeah. So you have to, to set those aside and then tweak the text to say, as you can see from table 3.6 in the PDF download, blah, 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 blah. So there's some technical issues first. The next thing I get into is I teach them some basic narration uh, ideas and uh, that I share with my students how to dissect their own writing and find what's most important in the writing. Uh, there's an old saying in the theater that goes, if you make everything sound important, then nothing is important. Mm. So you have to distinguish within a paragraph, what is the main idea or the spine of the paragraph? Because everything else supports it. Well, the spine is the most important thing to get across. And then everything else supports that. And we do that when we teach something. We our, The tone of our voice shifts. You know, then I read live, uh, work live with them, and I give them instant feedback. That's called tactical coaching. But then I give them homework, and the homework mainly is, I say, set up a little music stand and a chair in a confined space in your house. 
could be a closet, an alcove. If you don't have anything like that, set it up so you're facing the corner of a room with your back to the room. Set up the material on an iPad or a Kindle because you can't touch it when you're recording it because they'll hear the page turns or mm. hear you manipulating and so on. And then the, I require them to read out loud for 25 minutes. Okay. They must They must imagine that they're reading to someone or a group of people. If they stumble over a sentence, they have to stop, back up, and start again. If they hit a word that they wrote down but they don't know how to pronounce, they have to stop and look it up, right? They can't just mumble their way through it. And this will force them into also learning about posture and breathing. And so you, you know, they narrate out, they don't even have to record, they just have to speak out loud, sit there and narrate this book to an audience in their mind for 25 minutes, take a five minute break, do that three or four times a day. That's going to tell them faster than anything else what it's about to be like when they step into that little <laughs> tiny booth to record that book on the day. Because when they go in on the day, you know, if they've rented a studio space or the publisher has, well, that that's on the clock. Yes. The, you know, yeah. the money's ticking. And the one thing I do strongly recommend that they don't do is that they do not try to record it themselves using their own equipment. Because then they're wearing four hats at once. They're the narrator, the director, the engineer, and the producer. And that takes months and months of practice to do effortlessly. I mean, I do that when I record in my studio, but I've been doing it for 20 years yeah. plus. Sure. Yeah. So if they, I strongly recommend that they never record their own material using the equipment itself, that they get someone to record them. And that way, that's one, you know, the engineering part is now taken out of their hands. So they can just focus on their performance. Mm. Um, but mainly it's about vocal stamina, mental stamina. You know, it, if they start to drag in the read, and that's another thing. Once again, if, if they approach it as I'm just reading, it's not going to be entertaining. They have to perform it. And that requires a, f mm. a higher level of energy yeah. sustained over a longer period of time. It, it does sound, just to say, it does sound that actually if you do this stuff properly – it's really quite exhausting, or it's really mm. quite demanding, certainly. When I, um, you know, I, I coach in the mornings. That's how I break up my day, and now I record in the afternoons. And by the time I finish my afternoon session, which is anywhere from th two to three hours long, after teaching and working all day, by the time six o'clock rolls around, all I want is a bourbon and to watch silly cartoons on the television <laughs> with my kids. I'm done. I'm yeah, I'm wiped bet. out. Yeah. I'm absolutely yeah. knackered. Yeah. So. That's I, just done. There was one. There was one little technical question I wanted to ask you. Actually, that sure. has just come to mind. When you're recording, do you stand up to record, or do you sit down? Excellent question. I sit because that's the way I learned to do it. Because I was in a booth, but also I sit because I can keep my posture more erect that way. If you stand, once again, think about standing for two, three, four hours. Right. If you want a mm. middle ground, I would say use a high stool, like a bar stool. Yes. Yeah. But it's actually more important that where if you stand or sit, that your posture from the waist up is solid. In fact, I have some friends who narrate who use things like kneeling chairs or exercise balls or yes. yeah. you know smaller stools, and okay. that allows them you know to keep the rib cage and the spine you know erect, so the breathing is easier. So it's really a matter of preference, but mine is to sit. Okay. I just want to come back as well. We 
we're going to finish soon and I want to just ask you a little bit in a moment about the different coaching that you actually offer and how people can kind of connect with you but I just did did want to come back briefly to to this issue of public speaking so re-performing our work and actually public speaking generally I wondered if you had any advice say two or three key bits of advice to somebody who has to do public speaking generally it may not even have to be reading but they have to stand up and present a lecture or a talk or and engage people that way well okay so don't when i use the word perform there's a limit to the level of performance don't try to perform it where you just look up and like hey i've memorized this big long passage and then suddenly you go dry and now you look at the paper and you can't find your own spot (laughs) remember the performance is in the words you can glance up at the audience to check in at the end of a paragraph you know but don't try to be fancy and suddenly show off how much you've memorized a piece that's one thing good posture is another um i would also say stay hydrated (laughs) yes i uh i drink when I get up in the morning, the first thing I do is drink 32 ounces of water to set the day and uh, to get myself hydrated for the day. I drink a lot of tea as well, herbal tea, to keep my the everything lubricated. Mm. Um, learn to be comfortable using a microphone and learn to be comfortable, comfortable not using a microphone because sometimes things go awry and suddenly the microphone cuts out and yeah. now you've got a room full of people. So you need to – this is about vocal production – Right, it's a much trickier proposition to do, but it is doable. Um, also, I would I, I often tell people don't read from the book itself, the physical book. Have it put onto a, a regular copy paper, but enlarge mm. the font. All right. Another another little trick is if you certain points in the text that you want to make sure the audience gets, highlight them in your text. So when you hit them. You know, you're going to be nervous, but you know that when you hit that little yellow line, that's the most important bit you want to get across. Mm-hmm. Give yourself a clue. Um, warm up before you do it. Your, you know, your voice and your face and your body. Make sure you're awake, as it, not stiff. Mm-hmm. And then finally, I know this. <laughs> after all this finger wagging, I'm doing have <laughs> have fun. I know that's really hard to do, but it's have fun with the performance. Mm-hmm. And if you're too, if you're very nervous and uncomfortable. Then get with someone that can help you and practice enough so that it becomes like Mr. Robbins was an effortless thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because now you, yeah, you are outside your own venue as a writer where it's a solitary act of you and the keyboard and the computer writing. But now, like it or not, there's an element of live performance. You also are an actor now. Yeah. And you need to sort of own that. Okay. So those were the, the quick, the you know, the quick list of things I would recommend they do. So now you said there that uh, part of your work now is in coaching people. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the different coaching programs and training and teaching that you do, and how people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more about that. Well, generally, I, my main source of coaching is for other audiobook narrators who want to do nonfiction. That's the vast majority of my students and i have an extensive curriculum that i work with over lessons with them it's a set curriculum so there's an endpoint to it when i work with those those uh, students because i'm also training them not only to be good nonfiction narrators but i'm also training them about the business side of show business which by the way that's what this is so there's marketing and advertising and networking and listening to demos and building websites and things like that but for an author, it's a much more compressed time frame because we have to get them ready for the experience. 
So when I'm working with a publisher that or an independent author, often um, let me make draw a distinction here. There are a number of smaller publishing houses out there that specialize in working with authors to record their material. For instance, there's Find Away Voices in the United mm-hmm. States, as, as well as Elephant Audio. There's also Mosaic Audio. These are companies that deal with a lot of independent authors and even pub, uh, authors who are working with a publisher, but they specialize or have a large chunk of their uh, time spent working with authors who want to narrate their material. So what I always ask the publisher is, in this case, get the author to me as soon as possible. The more time the author has to prepare, the better the experience for everybody. Yes. And even if it's only a week, then that's fine. We can meet once a day or you know, you know, or every other day or something like that. But I try to get a few weeks out so I can have the first – I always do a little 30-minute consultation with an author – to explain about what's about to happen to them. <laughs> Not only working with me, but doing the, the, uh, the audio book and get a feel for the person and try to make a connection on a, on a person-to-person level. Also, by the way, I work with other coaches. So, for instance, if I have a female author, a woman author who might feel more comfortable working with another woman, I have a woman narrator coach that I work with that I hand her off to. So sure. that there's a, it's more important. The whole purpose is to make the author feel comfortable and prepared. It's not about necessarily me clocking in another author and getting my check. It's about that author feeling ready because they're about, to, it's like when you go work on a movie, your days on the set are that, that's it. Those few days you're working on the movie is it. They're not going to call you back. So the performance is the performance that they capture on film. The mm. performance is the performance they get on that recording on those days. So everything has to be focused on making the writer feel ready and comfortable when they walk into the, the studio. Yeah. So yeah. my job is if I have a, I have, I have uh, some colleagues who are British narration coaches. So if I had someone who was British who wanted to, you know, work and get ready, I would hand them off to that coach to get them ready. Cause I think okay. culturally they would have a better connection. You see, sure. it's once again, it's always about the author. It's always about the author, but let's say it's an American male author who wants to work with me. So like I said, I, I start out by walking them through the text, showing them what little things they're going to need to tweak to make it listener friendly. And I show them some basic concepts like scoring the text, where to breathe, what to emphasize. And then we start narrating live. And then at the end, I give them homework, whether that's reading an article that I've written about certain techniques uh, but it's always about practicing. They're expected to practice every single day. Okay. You know, I, if, if they're not, ultimately their level of preparation is going to be how long did they sit at that chair by themselves and read aloud? That's the ultimate, uh, uh, exercise that will prepare them, mm-hmm. uh, for the, for the event of the, the recording. You know, when, when the publisher, when I first had this idea about six months ago, because a, a writer had approached me, this woman from Los Angeles, and she was she was determined to narrate her own piece. It was about surviving divorce, and it was a good book, actually. Yeah. She recorded the book. She had scheduled three days in a studio to do it. She did it in two, right? Not three, mm. so she saved herself a day there. She paid for the whole thing. And then uh, Kenny Papa Constantino, who is the owner of Elephant Audio, was the producer, director on that. And I said, how'd she do? How did Deb do? And he said she was by far the most prepared author he's ever worked with. And that's when the light went on. And 
I have a lot of friends in the industry who have lots of horror stories about an author who did no preparation, who thought they were just going to read, and suddenly they have to do their own 10-hour mm. material, and they're absolutely lost. <laughs> you know, it's a horrible experience for everyone. And so, mm. Mm. you know, it's the focus – and so what I the way I'm working now with these publishers, I say the focus has to be the writer and that material. We all have to root and pull together yeah. so yeah. that person has the best op- opportunity – yeah, it's it is interesting because it what it reminds me of as well is the learning curve that particularly self-published authors have to go through around you do have to invest in the marketing, you do have right. to invest in the editing, you do have to invest in the cover. It's almost like it's a kind of there's this there's this cycle of learning that that writers have to as I said, especially self-published authors, which is the area I work in, where it's like can't you just write a book? No, you've got to think about it. You've got to think about the formatting. You've got to think about it. And, you know, you get the quality by spending the money, putting it quickly. Yeah. You get the quality no, by you doing do. the hard work. And, and unfortunately, there are writers out there who, you know, they want to – either they didn't uh, spend the money to, even on the writing side. They just, you know, they just wrote it and then had a friend of theirs edit it or didn't edit it very well at all or had their wife do it or their husband. Yeah. Or they have a lousy cover. Like it or not, the cover of the book itself can actually drive sales. Absolutely. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. you spend the money to get a really good cover. And then, of course, when they come to the audiobook, uh, some writers are, st- it's not, st- it's still not on their radar for some reason. And, you know, they think, well, I'll just have an audiobook as an option. Well, Okay, they may approach it from that point of view, but the narrator, this is what we do for a living, mm. and we expect to be remunerated mm. for it. Mm. And, you know, I have plenty of students who tell me stories of writers who, when they try to negotiate fees with them, the writer's like, I'm not going to pay a dime for this. I've put all the work in. You're just going to read the book. And yeah. what I what I tell them, frankly, I say, the writer's willingness to pony up some money, even if it's not a, a high per finished hour rate, maybe it's only – per finished hour to cover the cost of the engineer and the proofer. I tell my students, I say, use that as a barometer to measure the author's own interest as to how much time and effort they're going to spend promoting the audiobook. Yeah. Because ultimately, under a royalty share agreement, they only get paid by the units sold. Mm. So if the author's not going to bother to promote it, then why bother with the project to begin with? Yeah. Yeah, You know, so. You're right. You're right. You know, it's a, it's like it or not. That's the world we live in. Yeah, it's it's it, as I said, it's a it's a different manifestation of the same key lesson. I think. Right. Yeah. It's very important. I mean, I and and I know that for a lot of these independent authors, it's coming out of their pocket. But you know, there's another metric they need to think about. If if they want to pick up a publisher, and that publisher also has a recording arm like Random House or uh, Harper Collins. They're going to be looking at the author's book sales and their audiobook sales. Mm. And if they reach a certain level, mm. they're more attractive as a property for their next book. Yes. And then, and if the audiobook sales are of a certain size, um, so are the audiobook publishers like Tantor or Blackstone or Books on Tape. You see, Random House owns Books on Tape as a publishing arm for audiobooks. So if an author spends the time and money to, to write a really good book and spend some time and money to create a very good audiobook and they both sell well, their agent or manager or whomever can then hopefully pitch to Random House, let's say, and they look at the numbers, they can see the units sold, and they go, 
let's take a chance on this author. It looks like a good proposition. And then as part of that, as part of the deal, more than likely there will be an audiobook version that will be professionally produced that the publisher will pay for. Yeah, it's the so principle, isn't it? Yeah, it's about it's about seeing beyond the the project itself to the longer term career yeah. of the writer. Yeah. Okay. And um, if people want to f- connect with you, uh, how yes, do they do that? Connect with me. Uh, I'm online at seanprattpresents.com, and there's a form, you know, one of those contact pages. Okay. Yeah. You can sure. also read about me. Um, I can be found on Facebook at Sean Pratt Presents, and on Twitter at SP Presents. And, uh, you know, any of those platforms has okay. a way to reach out sure. to talk to me. Sure. And uh, people can reach you if they want to maybe hire you to do some reading for them or they're, it sounds like if, they, or if they're based in the US and they and they want some coaching for some more. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Um, and that, that website again was seanprattpresents.com. Is that correct? Yes, Brilliant. that's correct. Well, okay. Thank you very much, Sean. It's been great to talk to you and a real, a real insight into, into your work. And I guess anybody who's listened to this and initially thought, oh, well, all you do is just stand up and read stuff. Oh, I no. Think we've kind of blown that theory, <laughs> blown that myth away completely. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. Well, thank you. Thanks very much indeed for your time. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you, Andrew. I appreciate okay. it. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. If you want to find out more about the podcast or me, just go to my website. It's andrewjchamberlain.com. <laughs>